just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. I have to admit, it is still one of my pet peeves, and I see it frequently still in labor and delivery. Patients have come to labor and delivery triage with a certain concern, and they tell me that their physician, a separate provider, has ordered them to be on bed rest because of their medical condition. But this is no longer valid in obstetrical practice. Additionally, new evidence has come to light that activity restriction while pregnant carries significant obstetrical physiological, and psychological risks. So, in this podcast, we're going to cover a soon-to-be-released update from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine on activity restriction during pregnancy. This will be in the American Journal of OBGYN, and it will be consult series number 50. It's currently a published ahead of print article, but it'll be coming to formal print soon. Again, we're going to talk about the dangers of bed rest in pregnancy. Despite current recommendations against its use, activity restriction remains a common intervention used to prevent preterm birth in multiple clinical settings. Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, multiple gestations, vaginal bleeding, short cervical length, placenta previa, and fetal growth restriction are all common reasons for antepartum hospital admission and frequently lead to recommendation of activity restriction a.k.a. bed rest. However, numerous reports have shown that activity restriction does not prevent adverse OB outcomes, but does confer significant physical and psychological risks. According to the American College of OBGYN, the prescription of activity restriction and specifically, quote, bed rest, end quote, is not recommended for the prevention of preterm birth or prevention of preterm labor. In contrast, however, and this is where some of the confusion can come in, the March of Dimes does cite activity restriction as a, quote, possible intervention, end quote, to prevent preterm birth while acknowledging that there is little evidence to support its efficacy. Now, remember, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and ACOG continues to recommend against the use of bed rest because not only is there no evidence that it improves pregnancy outcome, but it is, once again, linked to real physiological and psychological dangers. Let's take a look first at this whole issue of bed rest for preterm birth prevention because the data is pretty surprising and actually kind of shocking. There's some evidence to suggest harm from activity restriction and preterm birth risk. A secondary analysis of MFM unit prediction study for preterm birth assessed the effect of activity restriction in women at increasing risk of preterm delivery. Women were assessed for risk of preterm birth at 23 to 24 weeks. Indicators of an elevated risk included preterm labor symptoms like contractions or low back pain, a positive fetal fibronectin screen, or findings like a short cervix or even prolapsing membranes. Preterm delivery was more common in women who were prescribed activity restriction compared to those who were not. Let's say that again. Preterm delivery was more common in women on bed rest compared to those who had regular activity. Now, while this difference was significant, the study was limited by the lack of consistent definition of activity restriction, absence of information regarding patient compliance with the restriction, and the possibility that it was primarily the women at the highest risk of preterm birth who were prescribed that bed rest. 
In another study, Grobman et al. performed a secondary analysis of nulliparous women with singleton pregnancies and short cervical lengths. These were randomized to treatment with 17-hydroxyprogesterone or placebo. Now, I know that there's questions about 17-hydroxyprogesterone now, but remember, this trial was before that study was taking place. Now, these authors found that preterm births at less than 37 weeks and less than 34 weeks was more common where women were placed on any type of activity restriction, whether that was pelvic, work, or non-work rest. And this occurred whether it was in the inpatient or the outpatient setting. Now, after controlling for potential confounders, they found an increased risk of delivery at less than 37 weeks with an odds ratio of 2.37 for women placed on activity restriction. In other words, what it tried to prevent actually increased the odds ratio of occurring. In another small pilot study, 49 pregnant women associated as high-risk for preterm labor wore a smart band activity tracer continuously for a week between 24 and 32 weeks to assess the number of steps or activities taken. The primary outcome was the rate of preterm birth at less than 37 weeks, and the secondary outcome was the rate of preterm birth less than 34 weeks. Now, no specific recommendations were given to the study participants regarding the level of activity. In all, 37 of the participants delivered preterm and 12 delivered at 37 weeks of pregnancy or later. The median number of steps per day was significantly lower in participants who delivered preterm. In other words, activity restriction actually helped to promote preterm birth. All right, team. So the next time somebody asks you whether bed rest helps prevent preterm birth, tell them this. According to the SMFM, although the evidence is limited and the quality is generally somewhat low to fair, the data show that there is no demonstrable benefit to activity restriction at women for preterm birth, while some data actually suggest it can increase the risk of preterm delivery. So the SMFM recommends against the routine use of bed rest or activity restriction for women at preterm birth based on preterm labor symptoms, arrested preterm labor, or even a shortened cervix. All right, all right, all right. I know we're supposed to be talking about the physical and psychological harms of preterm birth, and we're going to get right to that. But we have to knock down the myths first before we get to our subject matter. Now let's address a couple of things about bed rest and multiple pregnancies and even about the prevention or the helping to reverse fetal growth restriction. Is this a thing? Well, no, it's not. So first of all, according to the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, quote, the SMFM recommends against the use of routine inpatient hospitalization or outpatient bed rest activity restriction for the prevention of preterm birth in women with multiple gestations because the data is just not there. Additionally, the SMFM states that, quote, given the lack of data definitively demonstrating that activity restriction improves perinatal outcome in pregnancies complicated by fetal growth restriction, preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, or even hypertensive diseases of pregnancy, coupled with evidence of adverse effects of activity restriction, the SMFM suggests that activity restriction not be prescribed for treatment for any pregnancy complicated by fetal growth restriction, preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, or any hypertensive disease, end quote. 
Oh, I know what you're thinking. You included placenta previa in this, and don't we give pelvic rest or no vaginal activity in these patients? Well, the answer is yes, but you have to understand the why behind it. First of all, according to the SMFM, there's really no uniform definition of what, quote, pelvic rest means, with some definitions in some publications, some authors, stating that it is absence of vaginal penetration by a male partner. Other state any kind of vaginal activity or any kind of vaginal penetration, including fingers or instruments. And others expand the definition of pelvic rest to include no orgasmic activity. So there isn't one set definition of, quote, pelvic rest, end quote. Now remember, in patients with placenta previa, the indication for nothing per vagina or even orgasmic activity at that point is because of the potential for bleeding risks, but it's not really an issue for preterm labor. So yes, in patients with placenta previa, no pelvic activity, meaning nothing instrumented into the vagina, and that can be expanded to orgasm because during orgasm, of course, the uterus contracts and that may cause bleeding. But the idea is that we don't want to disrupt the vaginal central connection that can lead to this bleeding. But remember, this has nothing to do with bed rest. So patients with placenta previa do not have to be on bed rest. Again, that is not recommended at all. But it is cautioned for these patients to have anything inside the vagina because of the obvious bleeding risk. Okay, so placenta previa, you can get up and get out of the bed and go on with your activities with the only cautionary tale being the restriction for vaginal penetration. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, let's get into the maternal risks of activity restriction. We know from non-pregnant adult studies that clinically significant physiological shifts affect multiple organ systems and it occurs shortly after immobilization, just after a couple of days. With strict activity restriction, significant fluid shifts occur to accommodate perfusion to the head and neck. These shifts can lead to nasal congestion, headaches, and acid reflux. Extracellular fluid losses of up to 600 mLs occur within the first 48 hours of inactivity. This leads to diuresis and hypovolemia. As a result of these fluid shifts, electrolyte aberrations develop that include increased excretion of sodium, chloride, and potassium. The endocrine system is also altered after several days of inactivity with an increase in insulin resistance as well as alterations in bone metabolism, the latter resulting in increased calcium excretion and bone resorption. Now, researchers have also found that in non-pregnant adults, now hold on, we're going to get into pregnancy in a minute, we're just laying down the foundation here. But in non-pregnant adults, laying supine during strict activity restriction shifts the position of internal organs. 
the abdominal viscera are displaced upwards against the diaphragm, which increases the effort required by the inspiratory muscles. It also decreases oxygen inspiration and ultimately impairs gas exchange. We got to get these women up and moving. Furthermore, cardiovascular and physical deconditioning occur in addition to muscle atrophy and a prolonged decrease in cardiac output. Resumption of physical activity is often difficult and impaired. Now, following several weeks of bed rest, there's a decrease in metabolism and appetite, as well as skin breakdown, nerve compression syndrome, and there shifts in hormone levels, including cortisol, thyroid hormone, and aldosterone. Alterations in hormone levels can affect sleep cycles, and it can lead to insomnia and can also impair the function of the immune system. All right, now listen up. While that data came from physiological evidence of deconditioning and wastage in non-pregnant individuals on bed rest, several studies in the pregnant population have reported very similar adverse effects of prolonged inactivity. One study examined muscle metabolism after prolonged antepartum inactivity and identified impairment of oxygenation indicative of deconditioning. Postpartum, women had protracted symptoms of deconditioning, including muscle soreness and impaired mobility. Similarly, inactivity in pregnancy has also been shown to impair maternal weight gain. In one study, inadequate weight gain was correlated with low fetal birth weight across all gestational ages. So let's make this very clear. In some studies, inactivity has actually shown impaired weight gain, and in others, it's shown obviously excessive weight gain. So it goes both ways. The authors conclude that a randomized clinical trial is needed to compare women at high-risk pregnancies who are ambulatory with those on bed rest to analyze the extent to which bed rest, underlying maternal fetal disease, or both contributed to the inadequate maternal weight gain and poor intrauterine growth in that study. As in non-pregnant adults, here it is, prolonged inactivity in pregnant women was associated with negative effects on bone health. Evidence also suggests that inpatient activity restriction is associated with higher rates of gestational diabetes, and this is among women admitted to the hospital for antepartum management of pregnancy-related complications or even without patient bed rest. One retrospective study found that the risk of GDM increased by 4% for every day a pregnant woman remained on the inpatient unit on bed rest, 4% per day. While data in pregnancy is limited, elevated blood glucose levels have been well documented in non-pregnant patients that are placed on activity restriction. Now, of course, another serious concern with prolonged bed rest is what? Well, the potential increased risk of thromboembolic events, VTE, of course. In general, inactivity increases the risk for venous thromboembolism, which is compounded by pregnancy's hypercoagulable state. Oh, but wait, there's more. Bed rest can actually have adverse psychosocial effects. Let's do that next. Activity restriction in pregnancy can also cause significant emotional and psychological distress. Hospitalization for high-risk pregnant women is associated with symptoms of dysphoria, which is highest at the time of admission and in those with higher risk problems. Compared to women with uncomplicated pregnancies, high-risk women on bed rest have more anxiety and depression. 
The negative psychosocial effects of bed rest are apparent with both inpatient and outpatient management, although hospitalized patients are known to have more sources of stress. According to the SMFM, in particular, the extended time in bed can result in negative feelings and excessive worrying that can manifest as somatic symptoms. Women report anxiety about the threat of losing their unborn child, guilt about separation from other children or loved ones at home, and concern for loss of one's employment or financial stability. The loss of wages can lead to significant financial concerns and is often another major source of stress for these patients. Many women who are placed on hospitalized bed rest express frustration and anger resulting from a lack of control or the perception that hospitalization confirms minimal clinical benefit. Bed rest can also be associated with family disruption, leading to emotional stress for the spouse and other children. Separation from one's family has been shown to be the most significant stressor for some women and is also tied to postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression. All right, friends, as we wrap this up, you've heard it before, right? Quote, well, it just can't hurt, end quote. And that comes from physicians, nurses, medical students, residents, other attendings. It doesn't matter. We've all fallen into that trap. Well, regarding bed rest in pregnancy, bed rest can actually hurt. There are real physiological, mental, or emotional wounds associated with it, and it does not improve blood pressure or reduce preterm labor risk. So in this session, remember, we've covered the new expert series from SMFM, which is number 50, regarding activity restriction in pregnancy. We're thankful that you're part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.